Welcome to X Chateau. X Chateau. The podcast that navigates the business of wine with unique perspectives and insights. With your host, Robert Vernick and Peter Young. Welcome to this episode of X Chateau. Today, we're doing a follow-up conversation with John Jackson, who was a previous guest on our show in episode 15 when we were talking about influencers. And we're going to be covering a topic that's near and dear to his heart, really about wine collecting and the state of wine collectors. Previously, John Jackson was on our show, well-known on Instagram and YouTube for his handle, Attorney Som. And so we're going to jump into that. John, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. Happy to be here. Wine collecting is a big near and dear topic to your heart. And we have ridiculously high interest rates and high inflation, really volatile kind of market and supply chain issues, you know, making the economy in general quite in flux, but also impacting the wine market. But so far, the data doesn't seem to point that there's a lot of impact on fine and luxury wine markets. They seem to still be doing well. Obviously, there's some scarcity things. But we wanted to get some insight for you from the perspective of a wine collector based in the U.S. about recent trends that you're seeing in the wine collecting space. Sounds great. Yeah, definitely one of my favorite topics. I mentioned you're on episode 15. You're Dallas-based wine collector, also a lawyer. Go by Attorney Som on Instagram and YouTube with over 7,000 subscribers on YouTube. And what are you up to now on your Instagram? You're up like 27,000, something like that? Yeah, it's just under 27,000. And then recently you finished the diploma, which I know we've had some talks about your studies there. Let's jump right into it. So let's talk about your collection. I've seen the videos of your collection on Instagram and YouTube, but how many bottles of wine do you have in the collection at the moment? I'm a little bit behind on my cellar tracker hygiene, but the best guess I have is right around 2,000 or so. Pretty sizable. Scattered among a few different locations, so that makes it a little bit difficult. And there's boxes to my right here, and then a stack of invoices I need to input in Seller Tracker. But I think it's right around 2,000. Wow. What about all the folks you drink with in Dallas? How big is the group of wine collectors that you're interacting with? So just a quick little bit of background. There are actually two clubs now. They started out as just one club named Grayley's. And then what happened was one of the people who had been there a long time started a spinoff. And so it's kind of like a divorce where people divided up and then they both filled up their membership. So now there's those two. And I think they each have 100, 125 members or so. There's probably about 250 or so there. And then there's another organization named 5570 that opened in Dallas about a year or two ago. So there's arguably three of them in Dallas now. Cool. And you mentioned open a location. Are these physical locations or are they just groups of people that meet somewhere? No, these are physical locations. And they're sort of like country clubs, but for wine drinkers rather than other sorts of activities. And so they typically will have a membership component. You'll pay annual dues to be a member. Typically, you'll get a locker where you can store some wine or at least a certain number of bottles of wine as part of that membership. And then they oftentimes will have various winemakers or distributors come in and do tastings. And the other component is the social component where you can just show up and hang out there whenever you like to. So for example, if I would go there tonight and take a bottle or two of wine, I could just sit there and open those bottles and then other members would do the same. And then typically we would all share and that way you can open a bottle or two, but try seven, eight or nine things in any given night. Interesting. With all this growth and now three locations doing things like this, has the demographic of this group changed over the time that you've been there? It definitely has. I think when I first joined Grayley's, the original location back in 2011, there were very few female members. It was mostly just men, but that gradually changed over the years. And now there's certainly lots of gender diversity at all those locations. Yeah, we've been hearing that more women are getting into wine collecting, which is great. And do you think that 
all the dry January and sort of moderation and even abstinence of wine, has that impacted this set of people at all? Certainly, I've seen some people observing dry January, but that's typically just a one-month deal, and they're usually back at it in February. So usually just means you can get a better seat on Fridays in January for a little while. <laughs> but I haven't seen a lot of people just drop out entirely, and people still seem pretty excited about it. So it's definitely a situation where there's more interest rather than less, and especially given the fact that now we're supporting three locations, and I think Roots even has one in South Lake, so that's arguably four locations. And then there's a big community in Fort Worth as well. You have your wine stored at home, but then you have wine stored at multiple clubs then? Is that how it works? Typically, mine is just at Roots off-site. And then I have a little fridge at my law firm office, and then I have a bunch of stuff at home. Okay, got it. So all these clubs that you're going to, or wine rooms, you're for the most part bringing wine unless you're at Roots. A lot of it, except at Roots. Yeah, Roots, I have quite a bit of it there. But depending on what we're going to be opening that night, sometimes I have to remember to bring stuff from home. I don't think we have anything like Roots and Water in the Bay Area that I know of. We have like cellaring services and then we have people who get together, but they're kind of like separate. There's maybe one exception. We have a French club that's maybe a little bit like this. Maybe you can give us a brief overview of this work because I'm wondering if this is actually more common or is it just like kind of a Dallas-based thing about how this club works? It definitely seems like a smart idea to get collectors together in a central location and have a place for them to enjoy wines together. Sounds like a great idea for the Bay Area, to be honest. Yeah, I think one of the reasons that's driving it is that in Texas, unlike certainly California and unlike many other states, there's really not much of an opportunity to bring your own wine to restaurants. And so corkage is largely prohibited. The actual rule is that if a restaurant has a full bar, they're not supposed to allow corkage. So that takes away the vast majority of restaurants. So there's really only one or two, I would say, upscale restaurants that allow it in Dallas. And then there's some mom and pop places. So if you're grabbing a pizza on a Monday or Tuesday and you want to bring a bottle of wine, that's fine. But if you want a nicer meal with a group of people, it's probably not a situation where you have a lot of options on a Friday or Saturday. So especially with what happened during the pandemic, I think people got used to just kind of going there and having food brought in or just going there before dinner and then going to dinner afterwards. And I think that's really what's driving it and why it's so popular in Dallas. And there's actually lots of wine dinners at these locations as well, where chefs will come in and they'll make dinner and then they'll pair it with the wines from a particular producer who happens to be in town and showing off their lineup. And have you seen the club dynamics change over time? The dynamic at Roots is a little bit different in that I would say at some point, Grayley's became more focused on celebrities and athletes and this sort of thing in Dallas. And they started charging more for memberships. And then it became more cliquish, where before it was always, you could just show up and you could count on having a group of individuals there. And you wouldn't really even need to make advance arrangements with anyone because you could count on just being able to hang out with someone. And then Towards the end, before I moved over, it was a situation where I would show up and then unless I made advance arrangements, I would just sit there by myself for a while and I could do this at home. I don't need to pay membership dues for this. So that was kind of the reason I switched to Roots and Water. And then that became more like what Grayley's was originally, which is more communal where people sit by each other and do more sharing rather than just making their own arrangements and hanging out separately. Got it. And so what's the range of what memberships can cost like on like a yearly basis? I'm assuming you have to get asked to go or can anybody sign up? It's not necessarily invitation only. So I think if, for example, you would call up Roots and say, you know, I'm moving to Dallas and I'm interested in checking it out, I think you can definitely do that. And then I think it's kind of up to you and the owner as to whether or not that moves forward and how that works. But 
Typically, I think at Grayley's when I left, they were increasing the annual fee from fifteen hundred to twenty five hundred. Oh, okay. And at Roots, it's fifteen hundred annually still. And is that based on at all related to how much wine you can store on site? No. So I think at Roots we get a locker that holds forty eight bottles. You can use that, and then there's kind of another area where if you buy wine and it piles up, it's sitting in that area, but you're not really paying storage for it. Okay. In part of that, you're also buying wine as a group together too. Correct. It's like, hey, here's my club, and we as a club are going to get offers to be able to buy wine, and then you're able to source it that way. Correct. And there's two different types of wine sales that are made by the club owners typically. They typically have a business where they'll buy up wine sellers, wine collections, and then sell them to their membership. Oh, cool. Okay. And then the other component would be straight retail, where they get wine from distributors and then resell it to their members. I assume that as a group, be pretty attractive for distributors. I mean, I'm assuming most people joining something like this are kind of like high net worth individuals. Although I will say that the cost of the memberships that you mentioned don't seem that extravagantly high. At Grayley's, at least, there's a minimum spend, and that was going way up as well. So I think that the bigger issue there is that there was an expectation that you would spend a certain minimum amount every year. Got it. Every time I heard them giving the membership pitch to someone new, the number always went higher. (laughs) So I think it kind of varied by individual, but I would say that's more where you spend the higher percentage of your money is on the annual spend rather than the membership fee. Now that makes more sense. So it's not just a club, but it's also a retailer and a little bit of storage. Exactly. Most of your money is spent on the retail part. You're buying from them wine and then You have your annual membership fee. Are there any other costs? Like when you go there every time, do you have to pay or anything else? So if there's certain events, sometimes there'll be a charge on it. There's oftentimes distributor tastings where you can just drop in and taste the lineup and there's no charge. But if there's something, especially if they have to hire a chef and there's out-of-pocket costs for them, then there's usually some sort of a charge for a dinner like that where you spend X amount per person and then you get the dinner as well as the pairings. Going back to collecting wines and what people are doing, for your collection, what's the breakdown in terms of like region of where you're buying wine from? It's changed a little bit. If you're talking about what I'm buying currently, there's still a problem where I probably buy more champagne than any other region, but I have less of it. And that's just because I drink that so much more often than everything else. I think I'm always buying more champagne than anything else. Sounds like a good problem. Yeah. <laughs> you're drinking it at least. When you first said, I thought you're buying just more expensive champagne than normal. You're just buying less of it, but champagne prices went up. You're like, I'm spending more money by getting less bottles, but no, you're just drinking it. That's good. Especially because a lot of the champagne I like with age, and then I get a lot of the non-vintage just for current consumption. Then there's some of it I try to keep my hands off of. The rest of it really goes fast. After champagne, what else is in your collection? So I would say probably just because of the way I started out, California is still probably the single biggest component, but it's been coming down in terms of its weighting because I'm buying less of it. But I just started out so heavy in it before I identified other regions of interest that it's still kind of a legacy heavy weighting. But definitely, I'm very excited about Rhone, both North and South, but Northern Rhone is probably my favorite. Certainly lots of Bordeaux. Bordeaux would probably be second in terms of weighting. I've been getting into more Spanish wines as well. I did a trip to Spain last year and visited both Priorat and Rioja. So those have been areas that I'm adding to my cellar as well. And then I do enjoy Italy as well, but that would be probably right in there with Spain. And definitely the top representations would be Bordeaux, Champagne, Rhone, Napa. Those are definitely the top four. 
So in terms of this group in Dallas that you get together with and know quite well, what are the wine regions that are most in demand from them right now, or even specific wineries, if there's some that are popular? Yeah, so in terms of specific wineries, Pichon Lalande has always been a house favorite. And so at least there, anytime that comes in, it's always at a super premium compared to whatever it would be pretty much anywhere else in the world, I think. That can be frustrating, but that's definitely probably one of the favorites. Bordeaux is definitely a favorite, but I would say those four categories are certainly the most in demand. I would add Burgundy to that mix too. So probably Bordeaux, Burgundy, Rhone to a lesser extent, but Champagne and Napa are definitely the top four or five in terms of demand. And have you seen that change over the last few years? I would say those are still probably the categories that people are the most interested in, but I have seen people at least expand what they drink when they're not at the club to include other areas. So for example, when you're at the club, you probably wouldn't take a wine that's a daily drinker because you know other people are going to be opening nice bottles. So you're going to take something that's a bottle that would be well-received. And so I would say it hasn't changed so much with what we drink at the club, but I know a lot of people are getting into other areas in terms of what they drink at home on a daily basis. And Willamette is definitely something that's becoming more popular. There's probably five or six of us that get together and have super focused high-end tastings a few times a year. And I would say at least three of us out of those five or six people go to Willamette regularly and have pretty significant portions of Willamette Valley wines in our cellars. Although we don't really drink them at the club, we just drink them at home. Right, right. Where do people hear about all these new wineries from and what has the most influence of when people hear about something new? I think the main area would be the distributor tastings and the visits that take place at the club itself, because that's always the best way if people can just meet with representatives and taste the wines on their own. Sometimes what happens is someone will, for example, when I went to Spain and I came back, then there were some wines that I discovered that sometimes I'll open and then other people will like them as well. And then they might start trying to track them down too. And then... It could be other sources such as social media or things of that nature where they discover a wine that way or when they visit because a lot of the membership does their own wine traveling as well. So they go to various regions and schedule their visits and come back usually with some of the wines that they enjoy from their trip. And is that pretty frequent? How frequent? I know you travel a decent bit to wine regions. Do the other people in your group also travel as frequently? I don't know about as frequently, but I think certainly a lot of them will do at least two or three wine trips a year. I know a lot of them go to Napa regularly. Some more have gone to Willamette Valley. Some even go to South America and other places. So lots of them have been to Bordeaux and other places in France as well. So the vast majority of them do some sort of wine travel every year. And I would say probably at least half of them do multiple trips. That's pretty good. That's probably as much as I do, although I guess Napa and Sonoma, I don't count that or things in California. And then all these other people in these clubs, is their collections similar size to yours, like 2,000 bottles or what's sort of the range? Yeah, I know people who have much bigger collections and I know people who have some that are smaller. I think mine's probably maybe average, maybe top half, but it's definitely not way up there. Let's move on to wine pricing. Burgundy and some other Somme favorites, like some of the Northern Rhones and some of the things that Loire have like really skyrocketed in price over the last decade or two. There's some data from LiveX suggesting that this might be slowing down at the end of last year, meaning that the markets have already hit their high high. 
What are you seeing in terms of price changes and how are they impacting what people buy for Burgundy or the latest on Premier from Bordeaux? In general, people are being a lot more selective about what they purchase. I know I'm really struggling with some of the prices just because they're about double what I'm used to seeing. And so I even told Peter that I received an unsolicited invitation from an auction house wondering if I was selling anything. They even said that the market was at an all-time high and were trying to lure some additional purchases that they could auction off. So I think it's definitely a seller's market right now. So I think a lot of the people I know are kind of getting by just drinking down what they have and waiting for it to pass rather than going out and buying a bunch of collectible wine to add to their cellar. And you mentioned Willamette a couple of times. Is that one of the regions that people are looking at as red and white burgundy alternatives given the crazy prices that some of the current vintages have for Pinot Noir and Chardonnay there? I have a term I use called uh, seller defenders. And so I would say that they would do more of a, a seller defender role. So it's something you can open pretty much any night of the week without feeling bad about opening it. And it might keep you from opening up one of your other wines that will continue to improve in the bottle with some additional age and which it might be more expensive for you to replace right now. Besides Willamette, what else would you put in that category for those seller defenders? It's an interesting term. I've seen you use it on your YouTube videos that talk a lot about wine collecting. Like, What else would you put in that category? Yeah, I would definitely say Rioja is a good one, especially places like Lopez Heredia that age their wine for a long period of time before it's released. Because with those, even if you're getting the new releases, they already have some complexity. But yet the prices are extraordinarily reasonable relative to lots of other wines of similar quality. Chateauneuf is actually still pretty good value, I think, relative to a lot of regions. And so things like Domaine Pagot and some of those others are still excellent value, especially if you can get them from some of the flash sites. Like I've seen Pagot as little as 40 or 50 bucks a bottle. So whenever I see that, I always buy a bunch of it and I'm always happy to open a bottle of Pago. And the good thing about that is I enjoy it when it's young. And then again, after it has some more age on it. So it gives you some flexibility. And if you want to dip into a couple of bottles when they're young, they show pretty well then. And then otherwise, it'll certainly age for a while as well. So a lot of those four or five kind of key focus areas for collectors are imported in the US. And so those prices have been going up because of demand or supply chain issues and really kind of increased prices. And then domestic winers seem to be raising their prices to combat inflation. Is that something you're seeing across the board or is it worse in some areas than others in terms of when, you, when you're looking at things that you're buying? I definitely think Burgundy is the worst. I think part of that was the, uh, the 2021 vintage and what a disaster that was in terms of they lost 80% of the white harvest and up to half of the red. And so I think they're still working their way through that. I was just there last week, and the other thing they told me is that they're trying to bring down the average age of their vineyard down to about at least one producer, down to about 35 years, because now they have a lot of 50 and 60-year-old vines that just aren't producing that much fruit. And so one way to potentially combat the loss of yield, vintages where there's frost damage and so forth, would be to potentially bring down the overall age of their vineyard such that they would have a higher harvest on a going-forward basis once that's accomplished. In terms of pricing, have you seen wineries do it well versus not so well? Are there things where when you see a price increase, you're not as turned off and other times where you're maybe like, that's enough? I think so. I think it depends on the producer to some extent. For example, if a producer has been at it for 200 years and is a first growth, that's one thing, especially if they have a strong vintage. And the thing I appreciate about Bordeaux is if they have a vintage that's not as strong, they'll bring the prices down too, where it seems like in some places like Napa, the prices only go up. 
that's something that I think is refreshing. The other thing, I guess, with Napa is the 2020 vintage. It's interesting now to see how that's kind of playing out in terms of some who just didn't release anything and others who say they picked before there was any issues and there's nothing to see here and they're just selling it like it's a regular release. So I'm definitely skeptical of vintages like that, like 2017 and 2020. I think certainly if there's price increases in vintages like that, my inclination is typically not to buy them at all anyway. But certainly if there's any price increases in those years, I would definitely not be interested. Yeah, interesting. So yeah, don't increase price in a poor quality vintage, (laughs) even if your wines are great, maybe, but the impact of that vintage as a whole. Speaking about Napa Cabernet, to get a good one, you're pretty much 150 bucks plus a bottle these days. What are the price points that interest collectors and your group, like, are they buying 150? Do they buy all these wines that are 250, 300 plus? Now, you know, 500, 800 for the top ones. Are there price points that you see your group starting to push back on? I think so. I think the other thing is sometimes you've been on the list for a while and you just accumulate so much of one wine. At some point, you wonder if you're even going to be able to drink all the wines from that one producer because you could easily end up with a couple hundred bottles just from one producer if you've been at it for a while and especially if they need some age in the cellar before you open them. I think definitely people are culling their lists and they're looking twice at certainly anything that's over a few hundred bucks each. I think especially if it's from a new producer without any name recognition, it's going to be a very, very tough sell. But if it's someone who's been at it for a while, has a lot of name recognition, you know, maybe someplace like Opus One or Dunn, places like that that are household names and that collectors have known for a long time, they probably have an easier time of it than someone that's just starting a new operation and trying to recoup their costs from hiring a top consultant and bearing no expense in the vineyard and the wine cellar and selling for $300 or more per bottle. Where does your group normally buy wine? Obviously, they have to buy from the club. How much of the wine buying is from the club versus other places? I think it varies by person, but there certainly are people who buy some of the wines, especially from the distributor tastings. For example, at most of those, there'll be a sheet where you can buy the wines at the end of the night. And a lot of the times, especially if those wines are well-received, people will just buy right on the spot and then their order will be fulfilled shortly thereafter. So a lot of people will do that. You know, there hasn't been as many of the sellers lately, but definitely if there's a seller, there's usually kind of a feeding frenzy to get first dibs on some of those. So you definitely keep an eye on your email and drop everything where you can go through that list. Then there are certainly some online sources as well that are known to buy up older collections and have wines where you can buy back vintages. And those are very popular with the members because I would say most of us would open older wines. Even if I would open up a Bordeaux from 2003, let's say, people would kind of look at it twice and say, wow, that's kind of young. <laughs> so a lot of people are still opening Bordeaux from the 90s or earlier most nights and not so much from the 2000s. And then those aren't auctions. Those are actual retails who either bought up old sellers or have back vintage selections, something like a benchmark or something like that. Correct. Yeah, exactly. A benchmark, I know, is a popular one. And we have some challenges there with our state regulations as well. But subject to those, we usually find some ways to get some wine in that way. And so have you seen selection or availability change over the past few years with the pandemic and supply chain issues? Has that impacted what you have access to or is it not affected? I don't know if it's attributable to the pandemic or supply chain, but certainly I think it's a lot more difficult to get older champagne than it used to be. 
eight or nine years ago. I know I used to be able to get 1990 Dom pretty easily for a couple hundred bucks a bottle. And now you can hardly find a lot of those things. And in a lot of the older Napa Valley, like 1990s Cabernet is pretty much out of the system and hard to get right now. Or at least when it comes out, there's kind of a feeding frenzy and it's a lot more expensive than it used to be. When your group finds something that others have been looking for, how do you communicate with each other to like, let each other know, like, hey, there's a thing going on. Is it just emailing, texting each other? I'm assuming it's not posting on Wine Berserkers, but it's a wider group. Like, how are you as a group kind of like sharing that information? So typically, if it's just a bottle or two, someone would probably just snatch it up and then maybe open it sometime. Okay. But sometimes a member will get a lead on a larger purchase. So maybe, for example, I'm trying to think of the most recent one. I think it was 1989, Chateau Palmer. And one of the members had a lead on an entire case of that. So he just sent a couple notes around and then within a couple hours, he had the case sold. So then we each just kick in and then get our share of that one. And I think we did it for 1991 Soldera within the last year as well. So that's probably the best way that we do it is if we get a lead on something and it's a bulk purchase that someone doesn't want to take on on their own, then they'll just send a note to some of the rest of us and then we'll try to pick it up. And so how much... Of the wine that you buy or your group buys is typically bought online versus in person at your club or local retailer. You know, there's a lot of winery direct as well. Even to this day, I think everyone still has their winery direct sources. Especially for stuff in Napa and domestically, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's a lot of winery direct. We can still do that in Texas without problem for the most part. So I would say it seems like it's a mix, maybe about a third of each. The purchases direct from Roots would probably vary based on if they get a collection in, then it would be a lot higher. I think that's what everyone wants, is to buy the vintages that are ready to go, that we don't have to age ourselves any longer. And so the online only like wine.com or flash sale sites like Last Bottle, are those at all important with this collector group or is that targeting a different demographic? I've spoken to a lot of them about Benchmark. And so I know that they use places like that. I think some of them use Last Bottle as well. I personally use it quite a bit, both for things like Ago, and then also they have a lot of the non-vintage champagne as well. So I know that's another thing that I usually get from there. And then some other odds and ends. But I think most of the members will use that on occasion as well if something catches their eye. And you mentioned maybe about a third of your group's wine buying is winery direct. Are most of those mailing list allocation systems or are they mostly like your standard wine clubs? I think they're pretty much largely mailing list. There may be some newer members who do some of the clubs, but I think for the most part, everyone I speak to is kind of down on the clubs where you don't really have any control over what you receive. You mentioned earlier that people are sort of paring down their mailing lists these days. How many were people buying from or how many were you buying from before and what's that down to? How do you make that decision of what to cut out? Yeah, I'm trying to think how many I'm in currently, but I think at one point I was definitely on way more than 10, probably more like 15 or 16 which is one reason why my seller is still imbalanced. (laughs) (laughs) Now I'm probably on four or five at the most. And some of those I just made a couple of years ago. I finally made the SQN list after waiting for 10 years. So I didn't want to get off that too quickly. But now the problem is they have children and then spinoffs and all these other things. So now there's three or four of them, plus they have the double oak aging and all this other stuff. So you're constantly getting stuff from them. So even that's becoming a problem. But that's the main one that I'm on is SQN and all their progeny. (laughs) But the others, I just kind of see what comes in and I don't necessarily buy regularly. And if they take me off, then they take me off. But for a lot of the ones that I was on before, I still have plenty of wine left, 80, 90 bottles. So 
it's going to take me a while to get through that anyway. And in your group of collectors, do any of them do wine investment for more like financial return versus drinking? I would say it's probably not their original intent, but I know for a fact that a lot of them have a lot of wines that they bought maybe 10 years ago that have gotten to astronomical prices. And then if you have a wine that you bought for $200 and all of a sudden now it's 3000 it's a tough decision to just start drinking that down. I know a lot of people who have sold some of that and then just used it to buy more reasonably priced wines right now. Do any of them invest with some of the investing only platforms like, or not only, but investing platforms like the Cult Lines or VinoVest? They might, but I haven't had that discussion with anyone. I'm not aware of anyone doing that. Most of us have so much invested in our collection that probably for diversity purposes, it's better that we not take that on as well. As we mentioned, your handle is Attorney Som, and you're pretty active with wine on Instagram. Have you seen the community change and evolve over the last few years? Like, How is it different from what you were doing a couple of years ago? Sure. In terms of the content? Yeah, or even the community around wine on Instagram. Curious on your thoughts there. I'm trying to think. I don't know if some of this is just my personal experience or if it's the experience of others more broadly, but I would say I'm spending less time engaging on Instagram and more time preparing content where when I first got involved in it, and I was probably the last person to get on it because I didn't even have Facebook. So I had Instagram before Facebook and I didn't even get on Instagram until late 2018. So I was very, very late to the party. But when I first got on there, I was, well, to build the account, I think I needed to do a lot of engagement. So I did that for quite a while and met a lot of people. But now I would say, and perhaps it's due to the fact that I'm spending a lot of time preparing YouTube videos as well. But I just don't have time to sit there and engage like I used to. So I'm just spending more of my time preparing content and I would say less just with engagement. And you're on TikTok as well, right? I'm on there and I have the account, but I don't spend much time there. It's definitely not my favorite platform, but I thought I needed to have a presence and I was trying it out a little bit. But by the time I got involved, every time I did something, you know, it was just kind of another grind to add to the mix. And there wasn't going to be any sort of easy windfall of followers or anything for me the way I was going about it. Instagram definitely has this really healthy wine community that probably has multiple sub areas. But YouTube's been like recently, obviously you're on there. There's a couple other decent size YouTube channels now. I'm curious on what do you think about the YouTube as a place to facilitate and cultivate a wine community? Is that an area that you're super bullish on? Obviously, maybe you could talk a little bit also about the content differences, like what you post on Instagram seems very different than what you post on YouTube. It does, yeah. And so I would say, number one, yes, I think there is a very active wine community on YouTube. And I've really enjoyed engaging and communicating with that community. It took me a long time to get to critical mass. I think I started, it'll be three years ago in August. So it was August of 2000 during the pandemic. And it took me three months to even get to 100 subscribers. And then another six months to get to 1,000. But in the last 15 months, I've gotten to 7,000. I just kind of stumbled across the videos that people wanted to see. And I started out doing a lot more educational content. And then people just kept saying, yeah, but what wines should I buy? And so then at one point, I just started doing these lists, top 10 wines at $50, top 10 Bordeaux at $75. And then to include the education, sometimes I'll do, like when I got back from Rioja, I would include four or five minutes of background educational content about Rioja and then get into the producers and why I was recommending them. Those seem to work pretty well. So anytime I do a video where I'm recommending specific wines and why, those definitely do the best. And 
What I found though is that unlike my Instagram page where I do lots of super high-end wines, on YouTube, my audience is very much focused on value. And so there they like reasonably priced wines and wines that are $100 or less. Sometimes even if I do a seller defender video, like the last one, I would get comments about, well, do you have any daily drinking videos? And then so I could send them a link to some that I've done where it's top 10 wines at $15 or top 10 wines at $20, things like that. And I try to mix it up because I know there's people at every different price point. One of the other comments I received last weekend was, if money was no object, what would you buy? And it turned out this is someone who just has unlimited resources and wants to spend some of them. So they're, <laughs> they're looking to go out and buy some legendary wines. But then the next comment could be wanting more wines at $15. So there's collectors at all different price points and with lots of different budgets, but they all seem to be extremely excited about wine and purchasing wine and they really enjoy the videos in the selections. So that part of it is really satisfying because I would say more so than on Instagram, like there, if you post about a wine, especially if it's an older wine, most people aren't going to have that wine and say, oh, I'm glad you wrote about it. Now I can open it and enjoy it too. Whereas on YouTube, if I'm doing a video about seller defenders, for example, last week, then they can go out and they could buy it. And I know a number of them do because once they drink it, they'll tag me on Instagram or they'll reply that they really enjoyed it, that sort of thing. I like that part of it. So a few years ago, especially in the height of the pandemic, engaging with influencers was a key method of building brand awareness for wineries and other brands. How has that changed in the last couple of years? I would say certainly that's how I got involved with it. During the pandemic, some of the producers wanted to do these Instagram lives where they would do winemaker interviews and tastings. So I started out doing that. And back then they were trying to find people who would do that with them. But now I think there's less of that. There's still brand deals and PR firms looking for collaborations on various things. But now the onus is more on me to reach out to them to try to get a visit scheduled. So for example, when I was in France, I had to go out of my own way to organize the tastings. And it worked out, but it's just more work for me to plan than it was before. So where before, I just had to open my inbox and it would take care of itself. So I think now if you're an influencer or someone creating content and you want to go that route, I think there's still a market for it. But I think you definitely have to be more proactive on your own and seek those opportunities out. I definitely think we, some of the influencers have gone by the wayside as well with the pandemic. So that's another interesting change that there was a ton of them at one point and then they kind of been whittled away or their content has just been filtered away from me. What are the two? So wrapping up the episode, we'd like to end on a personal note. And I'm curious, what's the most memorable wine you've drank over the last year? And who did you drink it with? So it's definitely the 1967 Chateau de Kemp. And we had that one almost a year ago. It just fits in the time window. It was at the end of May last year. And it was at one of our small group tastings at Roots. So there are about six or seven of us there. And we each chipped in to buy it. It was a 750. So it wasn't a half bottle. So we each got a pretty good pour out of it. But fortunately, Sautern is still very, very reasonably priced. And so that bottle wasn't as expensive as you might think, especially dividing it six or seven ways. It was definitely a no-brainer. But 67 is one of the top vintages for Chateau de Kim. It's probably historically good and one of the top four or five for the last hundred years. So that one was definitely very, very memorable and was a good group of guys to share it with, for sure. And obviously, it's uh, pretty easy for that to stand the test of time, assuming it was stored correctly. That's a smart purchase. Sounds like a great wine. That's one thing that I always encourage people to do if they're interested in birth year wines and they're getting to be about my age is to look for 
things like Sauterne and Port, you know, the dessert wines, because you have a lot better chances that those are still in their drinking window than you do with regular wines. Well, thanks for giving some insights to Peter and I and our listeners about the state of the wine collector. It's super insightful to hear what someone from a different part of the U.S. is thinking and what they're seeing. There's obviously some regional differences and backgrounds of people. So it's always great to hear that context. My pleasure. Thanks very much for the opportunity. Always happy to talk to you guys. Thanks for joining us. If you loved this episode of X Chateau, we'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and give a review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.